it was about a couple of months ago that we finished a period of 50 days of prayer and fasting, seeking the Lord for what is his vision for this time that he's put us in the kingdom. What is it that he has for us to do? And as the elders prayed and spent more time in meetings than uh, anybody ought to have to spend in meetings, uh, we did. And they were kind of hard sometimes and uh, very blunt as we really looked at some things and uh, got real about what some problems were. And out of that came just this theme, and it's got all kind of little details that go out of it. But it's poured out lives, making disciples, and that sounds, well, that's sort of generic. No, but it's got some real specifics to it. And one was is that we start getting a better understanding of what making disciples are because every believer has been commanded to make disciples. And we saw how we misinterpret that, make it too complicated. And, and the definition we used is not original with us, but d- discipleship is really helping others follow Jesus. It can be in informal relationships, and, 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 and yet it seems like people just need something to get a jump start. And so what we decided to do, and, and this is the third, and I think they've got all the past notes out there, and it's not like notes like we have on Sunday morning, just kind of quotes and, and Bible verses that are used and so forth. This is pretty much a transcript. I'm not going to read it. And I'll add a lot to it, and I'll probably leave some of it out. But it's something for you to take with you. Then after next week, which will be the fourth lesson, after next week, then or at and next week's service, but then they'll be out. This is all going to be put in a little booklet. It's just a way to get started with somebody. Now, each week we're, we're reading from a little book that... Uh, it's one of my favorite. I like little books. That way you can brag about how many books you read, you know, and impress people. No, I'm kidding. hope you don't do that. But uh, I, this is a little book with a big message. Uh, it's not real creative in its title. It's called Discipling. And each week I read just a paragraph or two from it. And I want to do that um, tonight. He gives the, the heading here is initiating. When it comes to making disciples of others, and, and what is making disciples? Helping another follow Jesus. He talks about initiating. Discipling necessarily involves initiating. It's not passive. You, you, and, and that can feel awkward. You cannot disciple everybody, so you have to pick this person and not that one. Particularly, do your schedules overlap? You also have to discern not just who needs help, but who knows they need help and are willing to receive it. That's real important. In general, you don't want to waste time with people who are not teachable because you will be wasting time. Look instead for people who, like the wise son in Proverbs, welcome counsel and instruction. Keep in mind... Discipling among gospel believers doesn't mean you are the discipler. You, as the discipler, always play the wise one, or that you must be some fount of Socrates-like wisdom with all the answers. Discipling in the gospel means that sometimes you lead the way in confessing weakness or sin. By doing so, you demonstrate what it looks like um, not to find your justification in yourself, but in Christ. And so you live transparently and honestly. Christian discipleship, in other words, isn't about displaying your strength. It's about displaying your weaknesses, too. But we have this treasure, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, in jars of clay to show 
that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Still, you initiate in relationship. Even if it's they who, come, who have come to ask you to disciple them. You're the one, to some measure, who leads the relationship by deliberately using your time together to point toward the way of Christ. Well, that little book is very valuable. Nothing really profound in it, just a reminder of what it means to disciple others. We're in Lesson 3 tonight on this just basics of the Christian life. We've entitled the whole series, the cover on the thing that you'll get next week is Discipleship Basics. And it's just a way to get started. It's not some manual you have to go through. You can take parts of it, leave parts out. You may take one lesson and just do the one because of where a person is that you're discipling. And so we wanted to make this really practical. And then after next week, we'll get back to more expository studies of just through the Scriptures. Um, so let's start. And tonight we're going to talk about the disciples' new identity. And I think of all the lessons, this one is my favorite. These truths have so transformed me that I just delight in sharing them with others. Um, You can see at the introduction, salvation isn't an end. It's a beginning. People miss that. It's sort of like, got that checked off my list. I got the Jesus thing done, asked Jesus into my heart. Now let's get on with life. Heaven's secure. Not really for them, because true salvation means everything has changed. Everything is different. Nothing is the same. Um, Salvation is just a beginning. And once a person repents of sin and turns to Christ, then you begin. And this is not just pious platitudes. You begin an exciting adventure with Christ. There is no more exciting life than the life of a disciple who is walking with Christ. And one of the most important parts of that walk, to walk victoriously in Christ, is to understand and appropriate our new identity in Christ. In other words, let me give you just one statement that should describe every Christian life. The Christian life is living out of your true identity instead of how you feel. You know why why some are struggling so much? Because you... You live based on how you feel. And when feelings rule your life, to use deep theological language, you're in a mess. You're in big trouble because feelings are fickle. And the challenge in the Christian life is to live like who you are. It's not that you live so that you can become a certain way. You live like who you already are in Christ. And that identity that is yours in him then begins to control and to drive all that flows out of your life. Now, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. That phrase, in Christ, takes us back to what we looked at in Lesson 2. And we learned in Lesson 2... That when he talks about being in Christ, in the Beloved, in Him, he's he's talking about this our union with Christ. And we saw that the importance of that 
union with Christ, being in Christ. It's also called the baptism by the Holy Spirit. That's not some emotional experience where you speak in tongues. It's where the baptism by the Holy Spirit is when you get saved, the Holy Spirit unites you to Christ. You are now in Christ Jesus. Listen, a hundred, this is, you go back and count them. 164 times in the New Testament, it speaks about believers being in Christ, in Him, in the Beloved. Different ways of saying the same thing. Now listen, if God says something once, it's authoritative. When He says something 164 times, you better really listen. And so every time you see that little phrase, in Christ, you are a new creation, In Christ, in Christ you're accepted in the Beloved. In Christ, as he goes through there, or in him. And that's, when you find one of those, just just mark it down. Put a little line under it. Because that's talking about your identity, your union with Christ. You've been baptized into, immersed into, made a part of Christ. You are one with him. Now, in lesson two... We learn that because we are in union with Christ, we are a partaker in his death. The way God sees it, the way God sees it's the way it is. All right? I hear people say that sometimes like it's not real. It's just the way God sees it. The way God sees it is reality. We learned in lesson two that when we're saved, The old us is crucified with Christ. We're united with him in his death. Galatians 2.20 is one of the top five most important verses in all the Bible. And it says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 6.6 For we know that our old self, some translations say the old man. It's that who we were in Adam, based on the, the, the consequences of sin coming into the world in the Garden of Eden. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion, control, rule over the body may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. We are identified with him. We are in union with him in both his death but also in his life, his resurrection life. In Christ, you've become a partaker of the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15:22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Christ's life is eternal life. And the moment you get salvation, the moment you become a new creation in Christ, you have at that time eternal eternal life is not something you get when you die eternal life is something you get when you are put in union with christ and we we looked at this last week but i had to review it because it's so important and foundational to what we're talking about tonight i, I i'll never forget i don't remember the exact time and place but i remember the wow moment when I finally understood something I had heard probably hundreds of times. You've ever had one of those? You've heard it a hundred times, and you thought you had it, and then one day you get it, and you're thinking, how did I miss that? And here's the simple truth. You're probably going to be saying, this guy's really dense. I've known that a long time. Well, here's, here's what it is. Eternal life is simply Christ's life. It has nothing to do with living forever. Oh, you will. 
But that's not what eternal life means. In a sense of existence, those who deny Christ will spend eternity separated from God in existence. Eternal life is Christ's very life. And when I am put in union with Christ at salvation, I'm baptized into Christ, I'm in Christ Jesus, I share His life, which is eternal life. So eternal life is the present possession of every born-again person, every person in Christ. Listen to 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. And we are in Him who is true by being in His Son, Jesus Christ. He... Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. Do you see that? He is eternal life. He doesn't just give eternal life. He is eternal life. And we have eternal life because he gives us himself. We are united to him. Now, so eternal life is not just when you die. It's when you come to Jesus and are united with him. Now, it isn't enough. It is not enough. To simply know with our intellect that every person who is saved, who has come to Christ, is in union with Christ and has become a new creation. And let me lay a big word on you. That's a very important word. It's the word appropriate. We must appropriate our new identity in order for it to be real in our experience. You see, there can be things true of you, but... When you've not appropriated it, you're not living like it's true of you. Um, to appropriate means to take full possession by faith. good example of that was the children of Israel when they went into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And remember, what did God, what did God tell Joshua? He said, Joshua, everywhere the sole of your foot steps, I've already given it to you. Now, So what did the Israelites do? Did they just step back and say, it's all ours, so let's just party and just have a good time. And we want some, we'll just go get it. No, there was battles. They had battles to fight. They had to appropriate. They had to take what God had already given them. He gave them the strength to do that. But you see, though we receive our identity in Christ at salvation, we appropriate it daily by faith. We began to claim what he says is true. For instance... Now, I'm not talking about little mind games here. I'm talking about confession of truth. The word confess in Scripture means to agree with, to say the same thing as. It's the Greek word homo logeo. Logeo means to speak or say. Homo means same as. To speak or say the same thing as God says. That's what confession is. We think of confession, if I ask you to finish the sentence, confession of most people would say sin, and that would be true. First John 1, 9, other passages were to confess sin. But we're also to confess truth. We're to confess who we are in Christ, even when we don't feel like it. Because when you don't feel it's true and God says it's true, I got news for you. God is right and you're wrong. Oh, this is such glorious truth. Um, you are not who you feel. You are who God says you are. And a part of walking by faith is confessing that what God says of me is true, no matter how I feel. Now, the New Testament tells us many things about our new identity. And perhaps the clearest description of our new identity is in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. And I'm not going to read all of those, but I am going to read several passages in Ephesians chapter 1. 
And I've got these kind of highlighted in my Bible. And I'm just going to, I'm only going to go down through verse 18. Not even going to read all of chapter 1, but chapters 1, 2, and 3 in Ephesians is all about who you are and what you have in Christ. Here is your identity in Christ. Here's what he has given to you to live the Christian life. It's interesting. We, we talk about this a lot in our evangelism training. But in the book of Ephesians, and really in most of the epistles of Paul, it has this format. In the book of Ephesians, when you read through the first three chapters, you're not really told to do anything. The first three chapters are all about who you are and what you have. And then when you get to chapter 4, he says, now. Now that you know who you are and what you have, he says, walk worthy, walk, that means live it out, walk worthy of who you are, of what you've been given. But just listen to identity. Let me me just start, um, uh, let's see, let's just start with chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, this is in Ephesians, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, that is, when we were united with him, who, when we were identified, baptized into him, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as, here's, here's, some of the, here's one of these truths, here's our identity, he chose us in him, we're chosen. Before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Starting to see some identity things here, who you are, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. The, the, the more accurate, trans, the, the New American Standard translation is what I'm reading from, which is the most literal. But this is one where it's, it's not put it the best. The best is in the King James and the New King James Version. And it says that, in, that he has accepted us in the beloved. We're in Christ. We are accepted. In him, verse 7 says, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will. Let's skip down to verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end, that we who were The first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, for who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. And jump on down to verse 18. Now, he's already told us all these things, and he's going to give us a whole bunch more in chapter 2 and chapter 3. But here's his prayer for them. He stops right in the middle of the longest sentence in the Bible. It's, it's, it's got some periods in the English translation, but in the Greek, this is all, this is all from verse 3 through verse 14 is, is no, it's, it's beyond verse 14 even. It's, it's the longest sentence in the whole Bible, in, in the whole New Testament. And listen to what he says in verse 18. He's telling them who you are in Christ. Here's what you've been given. Here's your identity. And he says, oh, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Are you seeing that? He says, look, you're missing it, folks. The church at Ephesus, you're missing it. You, 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 listen, this is who you are. 
You are chosen. You are predestined to adoption. In love, you've been predestined to adoption. You've been accepted in the beloved. You've been redeemed. You've been forgiven. He just keeps on going down through there. And he says, oh, I pray that the Lord would open your eyes that you could see who you really are and what you have in him. Ooh. And I pray that for you and I pray that for me. Now, uh, one of the methodologies in our counseling ministry is, uh, and, and this is not like some little thing that's done with every case, but I know uh, with a lot of the folks that are counseled is, is those who are counseling simply will have to give homework and say, go home and, and read Ephesians 1 through 3 and write down everything that's true of you if you're in Christ. Doesn't matter if you feel it or not, what's true of you in Christ. That's life transforming when people do that. Now, what I want to do for the rest of this time and what the rest of this little booklet that we're giving you to help you disciple another, whether it's a family member, a child of yours, whether I was talking to one of our, our staff the other day who, who said, man, that just he's got a, I think a, a, nine or a 10 year old son. And he said, I want to use this to disciple my son. And, and you might have to adapt a few little things here and there, but not much. You just go for it. Uh, it may be a co-worker, whoever it may be. Um, so what I want to do is I want to give you an example and send you on a Bible search that will last the rest of your life looking for what God says is true about you, what your true identity is, and then living out through the power of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, is lesson four next week, the power to live the Christian life, and, and trusting Him. You, hear, you find out this is who God says I am, therefore that's who I am. This is my identity. Now, Lord, in your power, I want to live out that identity in my everyday life. So let me give you five tonight, and that sounds like a long time, but some of them are very quick. Some of them, not so much. Okay, identity truth number one. Here we go. In Christ, we are loved. That is one of those truths that people can give mental assent to it and say, yeah, 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 God, God loves me, God loves you, God loves everybody. That's just not a great deal of comfort. Well, while it is true that God so loved the world, John 3:16, those who are in Christ, in union with Christ, are loved with a different kind of love. You're loved with a family love by God, our Father. You say, well, God, God's the Father of all mankind. Oh, no, He's not. God is the creator of all mankind, but he is the father of those who have come to him through Christ Jesus. Now, Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 that we read earlier. Let me read it again. The last part of verse 4. Most Bible scholars believe that the, the, the breaks in the verses there, that was not a part of the original manuscripts. That was done a couple hundred years after the Bible was, was written, a little more than that even afterward. And sometimes it's helpful to kind of say, you, don't, you know, I don't have to say, turn to this page and go about halfway down the page. You see the words this and that. Let's start right there. I just say go to verse 7 or wherever. It's helpful, but sometimes it kind of messes you up because it has a break there when that's really not a break. Most most all Bible scholars believe that the last two words of verse 4 go with verse 5. The words, in love. Now, watch this. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. That word predestination sends fear and trembling into people's lives. And it should send confidence into your life. It's one of the greatest words in Scripture. I've had people say, well, I don't believe in predestination. 
Well, you may not believe in the way some people teach it, but you don't have the option of saying, I don't believe in predestination. What does verse 5 say? He predestined us. How can you say, I don't believe in that? Just, you're just denying it? Well, you say, well, you may mean, you know, I, I know a person that says that means that it's kind of like the pastor that had a hyper predestination view and fell down the church steps and jumped up and dusted himself off and said, I'm glad that's over with. Well, you, you, that's not what predestination is. That's a, that's a perversion of it. And you may say, well, I don't believe in that. Well, I don't either. But you have to believe in predestination because it says he predestined us. Now, the word predestined simply means to mark out beforehand. Predestination flows out of God's love for those in union with Christ, the elect, he calls them. God's love for those in Christ moved him to do something. And people get so hung up on that word predestination, they miss a lot of the rest of the, very, of the rest of the, of, the, of the verse. The most important word in verse 5 is the word adoption. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Now, let me give you some facts. When, when Paul was writing this, the illustration he had in mind was Roman adoption. He lived in the Roman world. And from a, a commentator who I don't really trust in most things, but he really is excellent, um, William Barclay, he's got some weird beliefs in some things, but, but when it comes to customs and so forth, there's nobody any better. Now, let me give you, put, it, put this in the little booklet here, um, and I'm going to give you a little more than is in there. But when he talks here about that in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. First of all, some people, when they read that, will say, well, will say, well, the sense of that is he predestined us to adoptions as sons and daughters. We don't want to leave the women out. Well, you mess it all up when you do that. Now, let me tell you why he just says sons. In Roman adoption, um, and when it came to inheritance, um, now, I'm, you know, this was not biblical. In fact, it's anti-biblical. This is the way it was. The, 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 the females didn't inherit anything. It was the sons. Everything was given to the sons. So he takes men and women and says, you've been adopted as sons. You see that? That doesn't mean you have to take on male identity. It means what in Roman law is only done for the sons in Christ. It's done for everyone who is in Christ. So you've got to be careful when you try to change out some of the gender stuff there because it really is exciting when you see it in, in a world where women were considered property more or less. He says, no, all of you are adopted as sons. You have an inheritance. Um, now, let, let's, let's look at some things about Roman adoption. This is not just made up. This is facts taken out of documents. And, and William Barclay is really good at stuff like this. And that's where I got most of this. Um, first of all, in Roman adoption, the adopted person lost all of the ties with his old family. Well, what's our old family? Adam. You were in Adam. How did you get there? You were born there with a Adamic nature, a nature of Adam, the desire to be your own God, to run your own life. But when God adopts us into his family, we lose all ties with our old family. We're no longer in Adam. We're now in Christ. The second thing about Roman adoption, the adopted one became an heir of his new father and a joint heir with other siblings. Even if there were natural-born siblings when you were adopted, you became 
an heir of the father as well as a joint heir with your siblings. That sort of reminds me of Romans 8, 17, that says that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, the Son of God. But we, as adopted children, are fellow heirs. That's one who receives an inheritance. We're fellow heirs with the Lord Jesus himself. Here's the third thing. This one's good. The adopted person's past was forgotten. His legal debts were canceled. He was given a new name and was no longer held responsible for those things in his past. Oh, I'm about to shout over that one. You don't just sit there like a, you know, a knot on a log. That's really fantastic. Um, you begin to see why everything, when the Lord chooses an example, there's a reason he chose it. Um, here's the fourth one. The adoption was a permanent transaction. It can never be reversed. Now listen, this is neat. In Roman law, a father could disown his biological children. But if he adopted someone, that could never be reversed. That speaks of security. Um, and John seventeen twenty three, he talks about this love that would, in love, he predestined us um, that... That we might be to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. In John 17, 23, he now describes that love, that love that predestined, adopted us into his family. Um, I'll never forget when John 17, 23 came real to me. It was it was just a. It was like it exploded in my life. So hopefully it'll do that in yours if it's never come clear to you. If you don't know the context of John 17, 23, that's what's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. The night before he was crucified, he was, that was when he agonized and was praying to the Father and prayed for his disciples and those who would come to know him through those disciples. In other words, praying for us in John 17. And in John 7, 23, here's what he prays. He, 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 he talks about this love that God loves those in Christ. Here's how it's described. He says to the Father, you loved them, those whom he'd given to Christ, those who had come to Christ. You loved them even as you have loved me. Now, I think I was reading a commentary on this or something, and I'd read that passage probably a hundred times. He says, Father, you loved them, those who would come to know you through me and those who would know you through me and they, you would, they would teach others and, and those. And so it's right down all the way to us. He said, you love them even as you have loved me. And then in this commentary, it began to give a description of the love of the Father for the Son, the inter-Trinitarian love is what the theologians call it. Did you know, think of the love within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Through all eternity, one, one in unity of person. And think of the love for the Father, and the love of the Father for the Son. And, and, and I, I, I tried to illustrate it one time. It kind of went over like a lead balloon, but I tried it. And so now I'm not going to try it again. It would crush me. But anyway, I, I put a set of balance scales up on a, a little table. And I tried it a second time, and it was just as bad the second time as the third 
but I, it was like I was so frustrated because it's such a glorious, glorious, glorious truth. And and the and and I put the balance scale, and I had I found this stuff at my mom's house after well, was before she died, and she gave it to me when I asked her. And it's got two big candles that weigh the same thing, the balance scales. And and I I I, I, I put I had this one labeled. The love of God the Father for God the Son. And you put it on the balance scale and it goes. And then you take the other one. And it's the love that the Father has for those who are in Christ. The love he has for me. The love he has for you that are in Christ. How much does that love weigh? You put it on the other side and it goes. That's what that says. Look at it again. It says, you love them even as you have loved me. Whoa! That's who you are. And so, you know, you feel like nobody really cares. No, nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. Uh, and you no, know, listen, friend, if you're in Christ, I know one who loves you more than you could ever imagine. You are loved by the Father. That's who, in Christ, we are loved. In, old, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah describes the endurance of God's love when he says in Jeremiah 31, 3, I, I speak, God is speaking, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And so identity, truth number one, in Christ we're loved. These all start with in Christ. Identity, truth number two, in Christ we are accepted by God. Ephesians 1, 6. I'm going to read from the New King James Version. To the praise of the glory of His grace by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved, in Christ Jesus. When you are in Christ, when you have been united to Him at salvation and you've been baptized into Christ, you are in Him, you partake of His death, you partake of His, and your old man is crucified with Him, you partake of His resurrection life. But also, God looks at you and He says, I accept you. I accept you. You don't have to earn it. In fact, you can't earn it. There is nothing you can do to get me to accept you. I accept you to the max already. I accept you. Because you're in Christ Jesus. You're, you're, you're united with Christ. His, you say, I don't deserve that. Well, of course you don't deserve that. Jesus does. And you're in Him. And He says, I accept you in the Beloved. Um, I once heard Adrian Rogers make this statement, and I, I didn't give him credit in the notes because I don't, I'm doing it from memory, so I'm telling you. I think that's where I got it. And if this isn't exact words, it's close. He says this, All Christians have accepted Christ as the means of salvation. And I'll stop there. To accept Him means to, to accept that He is the only way to the Father and that, that we are trusting in Him. All Christians. You, you can't be a Christian if you've not accepted Jesus as the means of salvation. But most have not accepted their acceptance by the Father because they're in Christ the Beloved. Now, chew on that a while. That's true. All Christians have accepted Christ as the means of salvation. But most have not accepted their acceptance by the Father because they're in Christ the Beloved. And you, people are trying to earn it. And so, therefore, when I work hard and I've been a good boy, been a good girl... Then God looks down and says, I like you. I saw how you said no to that sin over there, how you helped that poor guy and gave him some, some help in his time of trouble. And That was good. I accept you. But then we mess up. And we do mess up. 
And God looks and says, how could you after all I've done for you? What a worm you are. Out of my sight. How, and Lord, what do I do? Maybe if you act right for three years without messing up, I'll accept you again. Now, that might be a little extreme, but that's kind of the way we think. Because that's the way human beings usually treat us. But God doesn't work that way. You know, it's interesting that the world, and, and I read this somewhere and got to thinking about it, and I thought, that's really right. The world bases its acceptance primarily on three things. Looks, brains, and performance. That's how the Lord, that's how the world accepts you. And we tend to think, well, the Lord must do it that way. Oh, we probably wouldn't go for the looks part, but, but especially that performance part. I mean, think about it. If, if, if someone is, is very pretty or a man is very handsome, um, they can be dumb as a board and the world will think there's something because they're good looking. That's true. Or you can look like you've been hit with an ugly stick, but you're smart. You got high intelligence. You got brains. The world will accept you. Or you can be ugly and dumb, but really good at some performance, especially in sports, and the world will accept you. Now, if you are pretty and are handsome, and you are smart, and you are really good at performing whatever it may be, the world will worship you. And so somehow we get some of that, and we tend to take that over and let it carry over, thinking that's how God accepts us, and especially on the performance. And we get on this performance-based acceptance, and we're always working in order to get God to accept us. And we're saying, Lord, was that enough? I could have done more. Oh, I didn't do enough. If I had just done some more, God would accept me. And God is in heaven saying, I've already accepted you in the Beloved. You're trying to earn what is a gift of my grace because you're in Christ. Wow. Let me tell you, um, three things happen when you accept your acceptance in Christ. This is really important. First of all, you can now live with the rejection of others. I didn't say it was pleasant. I have a friend who's a, a counselor who says that the most painful things human beings go through, the most painful things human beings go through is rejection. I have a hard time arguing with that. It hurts. There's not a person in this room that's not suffered the pain of rejection. And we could all give examples. And some of you would start giving an example of rejection and start crying. And then you'd get embarrassed because you said, why did I cry? That happened so many years ago because it's so painful. Rejection is horrible. It hurts. But when I know that the one who created me for himself, that I'm going to spend eternity with fully and completely accepts me in Christ Jesus. You know what? I can live with the rejection of others. I don't enjoy it, but it's not going to control my life. We have, when we accept our acceptance in Christ, we have a consuming desire to please the one who has accepted us. That, that's just the way we're wired. We want to please those who accept us. Why would... Why would a person join a cult that has weird beliefs that anybody would have to set their brains on the shelf in order to believe some of the weird beliefs of that cult? Because somebody in the cult accepted them and drew them in and showed them love and acceptance. 
And they'll just buy anything. They, they'll just eat anything they're fed. Uh, we could talk about the cults. We could talk about why, why do people run with a bad crowd many times. And here's a kid that's been raised in a good home, and they go with a wild crowd. Why? Because they felt accepted there. Well, when you recognize your acceptance, you have this consuming desire to please the one who accepted you. Not to get him to accept you, but because he has accepted you by his grace, there's this longing to want to please him. And that brings us to the third one that's tied into that motive. We can now serve God with a correct motive. Our motive is no longer to gain something, acceptance. Our motive is now gratitude for His acceptance of us simply because we're in Christ. You see, it's, we move from a self-centered motivation of service. I wonder how many people are serving God, going through some ministry, doing something in order to try to get God to accept them. You know what? You've got a totally selfish motive in everything you're doing. It's all about you. But when you recognize He's already accepted you, it becomes all about Him. And your motive is to give back gratitude and thanksgiving and praise to the one who has accepted you fully and completely in the beloved, in Jesus Christ. Identity truth number three. In Christ we are redeemed. Ephesians 1.7. In Him we have redemption through His blood. This one is quick, but it's not unimportant. Redemption goes back again to Roman customs and culture and law. Rome, some of this say as many as 60% of the population of Rome were slaves. And, and, and slaves, there, there, there was under Roman law, you could get out of slavery. And one way you could is that someone, maybe it was somebody that you had, had worked with as a slave, and, and as a reward they're giving you their freedom, and you could pay a price, and the slave would be given their papers that they were free men, a free woman, uh, and that purchase price, that process was called redemption. The, the, very, the word redemption means to purchase from the slave market in order to set free. Now, we were in slavery to sin. And in Christ, the price has been paid for us to be set free. Apart from Christ, we are all slaves to sin. John 8:34. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But notice the price paid for our redemption. In Him we have redemption through His blood. First Peter 1, 18 and 19, the redemption price, Peter tells us, was His precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The price of our redemption was the blood, the poured out life of Christ on the cross. In Christ we're no longer slaves of sin. The redemption price has been paid, and oh, it was expensive. The redemption price was the blood of Jesus Christ. You're no longer bound by sin. The redemption price has been paid. Identity truth number four. We are forgiven. I share this in many classes. Some of you have heard it before, and I teach it a lot. And every time I hear it, it's just like it's brand new again. And I prayed that the Lord would help me not to mess this up. That's always my fear. I'm afraid it comes in and is so joy-giving, I'm going to mess it up. So here we go. Ephesians 1, 7, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. Let's talk about forgiveness for a minute. I think we miss forgiveness because we don't see the New Testament concept in light of some Old Testament truth. Um, the, the literal meaning 
of the word translated forgiveness, literally it means to send away. That's just the meaning of the word, to send away. And so when we say we have the forgiveness of our sins, we're saying our sins have been sent away. I think it has roots in the Old Testament in Israel's greatest holy day. Today it's called Yom Kippur. Uh, In the Bible, it's called the Day of Atonement. It's described in Leviticus 16. Verses 7 through 22, and I'm not going to read all of those, but let me read a little bit of it. Let me show you what happened. He, the high priest, and this only happened once a year, shall take the two goats to present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats. That is a way of which one is chosen for what? One lot for the Lord. That is, one of the goats is an offering unto the Lord. And the other lot for the scapegoat. That's, you may have heard, somebody's been made a scapegoat. This is where its roots are. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot fell, on which the lot for the Lord fell, and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. All right, now let me unpack that a little bit. Now, this is going to get a little deep and involved, but please, 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 please stay with me. This is good. You know, just because things are deep doesn't mean they're not worth going down for. Um, Let me narrate the the remainder of this passage rather than just read it. The high priest, after he'd gone through all kinds of cleansing rituals and so forth to cleanse his own heart and to to cleanse from his sins, and and it it was very elaborate, the high priest would slay, he would kill the goat called the one for the Lord. And he would cut the juggler vein and catch the blood in a little basin, a little, a little bowl, we would call it. And, um, and then he would take that blood of the sacrificial goat into the holy place and then into the holy of holies. No one went in there but the high priest once a year. First in the tabernacle in the wilderness, then in the temple that Solomon built. Now, in the Holy of Holies, the main piece of furniture, if you will, was the Ark of the Covenant. And um, the Ark of the Covenant, if you've, you know, your whole um, knowledge of that's from the Indiana Jones movie. Maybe you need to go back and read a little more Leviticus, but... um, the Ark of the Covenant had, at one point, had several things in it, but the primary thing inside the Ark of the Covenant, and it was, it was a box about like that, and, and it, was, it was covered with gold, and, and, and in the box, the primary thing was the Ten Commandments from the tablets from Moses, and, and there they were in, inside the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments. Why the Ten Commandments? Hang on. Well... The lid, if you will, that kind of count sounds like a common thing, but the lid on the mercy on the on the Ark of the Covenant was a golden lid that was called the mercy seat. And there, inside the Holy of Holies, the priests, the high priest, would take the blood from the the goat that was the sacrifice, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. Now, this is where the goosebumps start, if you really get it. A couple hundred years before Jesus came, 
a a group of scholars, Greek had become the common language, the trade language of much of the world. And, And so they took the Old Testament, Hebrew, and translated it into Greek, which was the common language. And that translation was called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, the word they chose for the mercy seat was the same word that's translated propitiation in the New Testament. You say, well, okay, that really doesn't do anything for me because I don't get this propitiation. All right, I'm about to tell you. So hang on with me here. Um, that word propitiation is used, it's either three or four, I think it's used four times in the New Testament. Here's, here's one, 1 John 2, 2. And he himself, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Propitiation, see it in the notes there, means to make a satisfactory payment to one who has been offended. Now, now watch this. Notice the symbolism. We have broken God's law, summarized by the Ten Commandments. We have not worshipped the Lord our God as our only God, we have we have not worshipped Him the right way. We have we have uh, taken His name in vain. We have, as the Old Testament would have not kept, they've, they've messed up the Sabbath and made it something horrible even. And they had not always honored father and mother. And, and right on down through adultery, and when you take what Jesus' definition, not even what you do so much as what you think and desire and and right on down through coveting your neighbor's wife and all that we've broken the law and the wages of sin is death but jesus is our mercy seat and he is our propitiation he is the payment for the offense to god for our sins And the payment he paid was symbolized by the blood of a goat or a lamb. But he propitiated our sin with his own blood. And the law that we had broken has been propitiated. A satisfactory payment has been made to the one we sinned against. And that is God the Father. And he is satisfied with the blood of of Jesus Christ. Now let's get back to the day of atonement. When the high priest came out of the Holy of Holies, he then would go to the goat that was called the scapegoat. And he would lay his hands on the head of the scapegoat. And he would confess the sins of the nation. It was sort of a formal type thing, yes, but the, it, was, it was real. And the people would grieve over their sins as the priest would accept, would, would, would confess their sin of, of refusing. Perhaps he even took the Ten Commandments. We don't know the exact content of it. And says, we have we've broken your law. We have disobeyed. And symbolically, by placing his hands on the head, the sins were transferred to that, to that goat who was then taken out into the wilderness to never return. The goat was, that carried the sin symbolically, was sent out. He was sent away. Tradition says they took, found a high cliff and kicked him off over it so he could never come back. He was gone. Well, I hope you see the symbolism there. 
What an amazing picture in the Old Testament of New Testament truth. His shed blood propitiated the mercy seat for our sins. But Jesus was not only the one who shed his blood, he was the scapegoat also. He took our sins away. And now they're gone. Listen to what God says about them. Psalm 103:12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Hebrews 10:17. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. I'm always reminded when I was a boy in vacation Bible school, my great aunt Ruby always ran it and she ran it with an iron hand. But one thing I remember is in that little small church where I came to know Christ in vacation Bible school, we would sing this little song, gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Buried in the deepest sea. Yes, that's good enough for me. I shall live eternally. They're gone. My sins are gone. Whew. One more. Identity truth number five. In Christ, we are secure. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in Christ, in Him. You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. The seal he's talking about there was, was, was when a document would be rolled up and hot wax would be poured on it, and then a person of authority who was sending this document would take a signet ring that had his symbol on it, much like a, 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 a stamp or a, a thing that a notary would, would do, and he would put the indention in that warm wax, and then when it would harden, it could clearly be seen. The person, this is secure, and only a person... Only this person of whose seal is there or someone with more authority can open this document. And that was the picture he's using. Now, when, when the Holy Spirit seals a person, that indicates that they're saved and that they belong to God. Isaiah 43.1 says, Fear not, I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. You belong to Him. That puts us in a very secure position. The Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God has sealed us so that, well, we sing it like this. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from His hand. For I am His and He is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. He goes on to talk about. Uh, how a seal is protecting. He says that, that while no one can, can tamper with the seal, no one can steal our salvation away, but he also gives us security. He, he says that, that he is our pledge. Note, notice in, in verse 13, it says, uh, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. He says, a pledge means kind of like a down payment. But down payment is not really a good illustration of it. It, it, it really, it, it, it's translated down payment in one, by one translation, translate deposit in the New International, but neither one of those are best. The best concept of what he's saying here, this, this word pledge, the Holy Spirit is a pledge, would, would be earnest. If you've ever bought a home or in real estate and sold a home or sold anything. You, you, if, a per, if the buyer is, 
is serious, he gives earnest money. And what does the earnest money say? The earnest money says, I'm serious about this, and I'm going to buy it. And all I have to do is get the paperwork, but I've made a commitment to buy this, and here's the earnest money. And if they don't, then you get to keep the earnest money. And, and he says the Holy Spirit is our earnest money that God's going to complete what he started in us. So our identity is we are secure in Christ. Nobody has more authority than him than to open that seal and take away the salvation. And he has made a pledge, and that pledge is his very spirit to live within us, that he's going to finish this transaction, and we are going to be with him. Well, what I would delight in from this message is that you would go on a search as you read the Bible of your identity in Christ. As you read through the epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, even in the epistles of Peter, even in James and, 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 and Titus and Philemon and all of those um, Look for things that God says is true about you because you're in Christ. Remember that word in Christ is used 164 times in the New Testament. So you've got a lot of searching to do. But every time you get them, may it be a joy in your life as you remember who you are, learn who you are, and then walk, appropriate, so that you begin to live like who you are instead of living in poverty when you've been given great riches.